the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Where are we, Lionel? Well, Daniel, I don't know where you are, but I am in the cycling podcast, Not Watford Bureau. Still, I'm winding from the Tour de France a little bit. Where are you? I'm in London for a couple of weeks. And this is my, the French call it a, a recuperation beach, the plage de récupération. We don't really have a, anything quite as lyrical as, or as vivid as that in English. It's just a sort of a period of limbo, isn't it, between the Tour and the Vuelta. Mainly, I was saying this to you the other day, what always amazes me about this period is how little is accomplished in a week or 10 days or two weeks or three weeks compared to what you do when you're on the Tour de France. You know, you, you're travelling 400 kilometres a day, 500 kilometres a day, interviewing various people, pumping out various different types of content and pumped out anything in the last few days. Well, you're back to form now, Daniel. This, uh, we're pumping out an episode of the Cycling Podcast to, okay. to bridge from the Tour de France and the Tour de France fam to the Vuelta a España, which kicks off on August the 19th in Utrecht. That's a long old bridge. It is a long bridge. That's a, that's, is, that, is it as long as the Great... What was it called? I've forgotten. You see, this is how long ago it feels. Denmark, was it the Great Belt? That's right. The big belt? It's the sort of bridge that Francois would be terrified of, uh, his well-known phobia of bridges. He didn't. He was a little bit uncomfortable that day driving over the bridge, although he did declare it to be fine afterwards, uh, once we'd reached the other side. I, of course, on the other hand, have a phobia of belts, as we've discussed before. <laughs> of course. Particularly worn by inhabitants of the Low Countries. There are a few of those on show at the tour, weren't there? Yeah, an, an extraordinary, another in your sort of extraordinary list of things that... Uh, are and aren't acceptable to Daniel Freib. Um Yeah, we haven't. Well, we have seen seen one another. I mean, I was slightly disingenuous there, asking where you are, because of course I know you're in London because we met up a couple of days ago for a bit of a Tour de France debrief. But we really don't mix in the same circles during the tour, do we? I think I caught maybe ships in the night. Yeah, two or three glimpses of you dashing around the team buses in the first week. Uh, with your camera crew, didn't even see you at the service stations. Normally bump into you once or twice. The service stations, that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? I mean, I'm prepared for the absolute worst every time I go to the tour. I know that, you know, they're not going to be replete with wonderful gastronomic delicacies. but And yet, every year, my expect my very, very low <laughs> expectations are still not met for French service stations. What's happened to Orangina Light? The only crumb of comfort I used to get from the French service stations was I could buy a bottle of Orangina Light and it's nowhere to be found anymore. Only the full fat version or the full sugar version, is that right? Correct. Oh dear, oh dear. Um, I don't know, I haven't seen Orangina Light. I just, uh, yeah, the horror of the kind of the the plastic wrapped sandwiches or the the worst are the, um, the, the supposedly fresh made sandwiches that look like they've been sat there for, you know, couple of weeks or so and then your suspicions are confirmed when you tuck into yet another uh, baguette with uh, rosette the rosette baguette with the one with the the salami and the cornichons in isn't it in this summer of drought and canicule heat wave as the french say and hosepipe bands and so forth i think you could irrigate the whole of france with the the, the moisture in a couple of those sandwiches and salads they're always just wet <laughs> aren't they <laughs> 
very unpalatable. The disappointing taste of July lunchtimes at the Tour de France is perhaps another podcast, but we should crack on and review some of the things that have happened since the Tour de France finished. Uh, First of all, I have to say a big, big thank you to Rose Manley, Lizzie Banks and Anna-Marie Rook who covered the Tour de France fam so brilliantly. Daily coverage of the race. It was a fantastic race, uh, especially the two mountain stages. I know a bit of controversy about the TV missing all of the action the day Annemiek van Vluten really turned the race on its head, but uh, even what we were able to see was uh, sensational stuff. I suppose this is a very brief racing news roundup because uh, as ever the San Sebastian Classic took place the weekend after the Tour de France and it was another Remco Evenepoel masterclass attacking 44 kilometers from the finish at uh, one point Pavel Sivakov and Carlos Rodriguez of Ineos Grenadiers were working well together Sivakov ended up second and Tish Benut of Jumbo Visma were third did you see any of that Daniel? Yes I did Lionel um, it was in in some ways in some respects a, a bit of an action replay of 2019 and Remco winning but also in some ways very similar to the way that Remco won Liège-Bastogne-Liège and well this was predictable but it's obviously given rise to a lot of speculation outlandish predictions about what Remco might do in the Vuelta a España. He is the favourite I noticed the other day the bookmaker's favourite for the Vuelta a España which I think is is getting well, the bookies getting out over their ski tips slightly. I know these things are a reaction to how much money is being staked, but um, I think that to, to put him... Yeah, even if Primoz Roglic doesn't make it to the Vuelta and puts Remco ahead of people like Simon Yates, Jai Hindley in the betting, is a bit of a stretch. Well, echoes of the Giro d'Italia a couple of years ago when he went in as one of the hotly fancied riders making his Grand Tour debut and and it all came rather unstuck. I mean, it it can't go as badly as that. I guess he would take a a steady-as-she-goes type of welter, I would have thought. Um, But, uh, yeah, an impressive one-day Palmares building for Evenepoel, certainly. The stage racing has carried on. The World Tour continues with the Tour of Poland, which actually finishes today. And as we record, Ethan Hayter of Ineos Grenadiers is in the overall lead, ahead of Timon Allensman of DSM. Allensman won the stage six time trial yesterday. Uh, Hayter's lead is 11 seconds. Peo Bilbao is third, 18 seconds. And uh, he should hold on to that. I don't want to speculate, tempt fate, um, but... Uh, given the the course for the final stage, Ethan Hayter looks like he may well take his first World Tour stage race win. Uh, he took the overall lead from Sergio Igita of Bora Hansgrohe. Uh, Igita had won stage three, and the other stages have been won by Olaf Kuy of Jumbo Visma, uh, Gerben Tyson of Antomarche, Pascal Ackerman of UAE, and Phil Bauhaus of Bahrain. A kind of um, lower half of the Premier League sprinters week, really. The the tour of poland this year perhaps over in spain in uh, burgos the vuelta a burgos chaos at the end of stage two with a speed bump on a downhill stretch around 500 meters from the finish line a huge crash taking out probably two-thirds of the peloton and three jumbo visma riders emerged at the front they'd been on the front going into um you know that incident 
It was a kind of budget version of the Paris-Nice 1-2-3 from earlier this year, wasn't it? Timo Roussen won ahead of Eduardo Affini and Chris Harper. There's a couple of stages to go in Burgos, and Pavel Sivakov is in the lead. He took the jersey yesterday, getting away with the 20-year-old French rider Bastien Tranchant of AG2R. He won the stage. And as uh, somebody pointed out on Twitter, Alejandro Valverde was third, and there's a 22-year age gap between Tranchant and Valverde. Extraordinary. Can you remember, Lionel, any other stagiaires winning races, winning pro races? There have been a few in the last few years, um, but I probably shouldn't have brought this up because I can't remember who they were. <laughs> I'm sure there have been. Uh, yeah, Tranchant is a stagiaire, isn't he? I think he, he's joining them for good next season, though, isn't he? Yes. Uh, Simon Yates has been in winning form. He won a one-day race very promptly after the Tour de France and then backed that up with a stage race. I mean, a stage race, a two-day race now, the Vuelta a Castilla e León. And Juan Ayuso won the Circuito Gecho. Uh, that's his first pro win, which kind of surprised me because he's been prominent here and there, but obviously hasn't got over the finish line first. Um, but the UAE Team Emirates rider has got his first pro win. I know, Daniel, you're very excited about the Commonwealth Games. Yes, Lionel. Well, they're, they're taking place on sort of my home roads. Uh, Mark Cavendish was training yesterday around Kenilworth, which is a few kilometres away from where I grew up, I was um, exchanging messages with him yesterday, um, telling him about the 200 metre stretch at 5%, um, just outside Kenilworth, that used to be my Alp d'Huez, circa about 1994. So this is the Daniel Freiber classic, is it? Yes. Wow. wow. Well, the Commonwealth Games are taking place in Birmingham. The time trials took place on Thursday. The women's medals were won by Grace Brown of Australia, took gold. Anna Henderson of England, silver. And Georgia Williams of New Zealand took bronze. Uh, The men's time trial was pretty eventful. There was a spectacular crash for England's Dan Bigham. Uh, He clipped the barriers and needed a bike change. Geraint Thomas, who ended up with the bronze medal, crashed early on. He also clipped the barriers, got back up. And his time was good enough for third place. Fred Wright of England, who finished the tour very strongly, he took the silver. And it was Rowan Dennis of Australia who took the gold. Uh, the road races are in Warwick on Sunday. And I'm actually going up there for that, Daniel. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing. Oh, I'll see if there's... Is there some kind of blue plaque up there on one of the buildings? Daniel Freiber used to train here. <laughs> I think there's a monument on one of the climbs, actually. On the top of one of the climbs. And very quickly, have I got time to run through the 14 biggest confirmed transfers so far because the transfer window flew open on uh, August the 1st, a bit like, uh, I don't know, the, the, the shutters on a French chateau being thrown open in the morning. Uh, what have we got? Eddie Dunbar goes from Ineos to Bike Exchange. He hasn't had a chance to ride a Grand Tour since the 2019 Giro, but presumably will get a chance at Bike Exchange. Uh, looks on paper like a good move for Dunbar there. Alexander Kristoff is going to finish his career, we imagine, at Uno X, moving from Antamarche, 35 years old, but he's got a three-year deal with the uh, Uno X team. Former world champion Roy Costa, he's moving from UAE to Antamarche. And Mike Turnison, who won the opening stage of the Tour in Brussels, in 2019 goes from Jumbo to Antamarche so Antamarche one of the busier teams so far another busy team Alpecin de Koenig who have signed Soren Kral Andersen from DSM Quentin Hermans from Antamarche and Caden Groves from Bike Exchange and Sudal Quickstep have signed Jan Hurt from Antamarche Kasper Pedersen from DSM and the big one for them I think Tim Mullier from Alpecin de Koenig 
Uh, Groupama FDJ have promoted six of the young riders from their development squad to the senior squad, including Britain's Sam Watson. Leo Hayter joined his older brother Ethan at Ineos. Uh, Leo won the Baby Jira this year. And probably the biggest confirmed transfer so far, I guess, Lorena Ribas, who won two stages of the Tour de France Femme. She leaves DSM to go to SD Works. Uh, whatever the men's team can do, losing talented riders, the women's team can do as well. Uh, even though she's under contract, she apparently has a clause saying that if she got a better offer, she could leave. Uh, she's won more races this season than any other woman and yeah next year she will line up in the colours of SD Works Lionel just a couple of footnotes um, Bastien Tronchon the, the stagiaire that won in Burgos yesterday I believe he doesn't yet have a confirmed deal with that team or any other team uh-huh. AG2R or any other pro team next year although after that result yesterday um, there's a good chance he'll get one did you notice that in Burgos um, Superman is back in the fold for Astana looking pretty good ahead of the Vuelta mm. España talking big deals Filippo Ganna signed a five year extension with Ineos Grenadiers which is well it's a measure of something we've spoken about a lot over the last two or three years teams becoming more and more stable and I suppose the whole edifice of professional cycling becoming more and more professional I suppose certainly the world tour you can we can debate and and talk about the the drop off and and how the sort of lower level is and particularly with uh, the discussions we've been having over the last few months about relegation and and that the lower tiers are sort of existentially threatened in in some ways but at the top of the sport the cake is rising higher and higher isn't it it does seem to be yeah the haves um, are doing pretty well and the have-nots are scrapping around at the bottom but Daniel we're gonna look back in this episode aren't we with your long-awaited wine glass rating I mean this isn't a cycling podcast exclusive because you have revealed your rating for the Tour de France uh, on social media but we'll talk about your thoughts of the tour in the next part the cycling podcast Powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. If you want to listen to the Super Sapiens podcast, you can find it in all good podcast apps. Tell you lots about how elite athletes have been using Super Sapiens. And Super Sapiens have actually done their own survey of users recently. And 70% of those users surveyed said that Super Sapiens had improved their daily food management or eating habits. 61% said that Super Sapiens had improved their daily lifestyle or training quality. And 57% say Super Sapiens has helped reduce the number of times that they bonk or feel low energy or unexpectedly lose pace or power during exercise. To find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Daniel, your patented system of rating the Tour de France by allocating a number of wine glasses out of five is long established now. I think you stretched back to 2002. The f- 2000. Right? 2000. 2000. That was yeah. the first edition you covered as a journalist? Um, no, actually 2001 was, or the first, 2001 was the first one I covered on the ground at least. I mean, what's the criteria here? Well, that's the thing. We reveal your rating. 
Well, it's like the recipe of Coca-Cola line. It will never be revealed, although most people assume it, it has something to do or that it, it is solely to do with the, the general classification battle and how suspenseful, how dramatic that is. Um, that's definitely one component, but there are lots of other elements to it. The roots, but I think generally the biggest one, without going into too much detail, is the, the sort of sustained level of entertainment um, Lionel, I was thinking before we recorded today that one sort of mental measure that I have of that is how urgently after I get into the car um, after the start at the Tour de France, um, having done interviews you know, in the mix zone, as the case is now, or has been for the last two or three years, how urgently um, I feel I need to turn on the action and, and start following the racing. I mean, this is something that anyway was impossible up until three or four years ago, technologically speaking. But now, of course, we can use our mobile phones to watch the first hour of racing. I mean, that's another change. And we can talk about how that development, the fact that the starts of stages um, have actually influenced the racing. But, um, yeah, you can watch the first hour, generally speaking, nowadays. And, um, yeah, a lot of the time at the Tour this year... Um, I was very conscious of the need to tune in almost immediately because there were things happening that were that were going to affect not only how the stage played out but also how, how the whole race and how tour the whole tour played out. So there was a lot of that, and that very much fed into me giving this year's tour a resounding five glasses. But I'm I want to know, Lionel, what would you have given the tour? Well, that's a good question, Daniel, because when I saw your five wine glass rating, I did wonder whether you'd been standing out in the direct sunlight for a little bit too long, because you're quite a harsh marker, I think. I think sometimes you've you've, you've got a reputation, perhaps not even borne out by previous uh, ratings, but... I'm the AA Gill. Yeah, the assumption is you're quite tough to please, Um I, I was anticipating a sort of a four, but with a kind of some kind of caveat, uh, just just explaining why you hadn't gone the, the full five wine glasses. But um, I would also have given it a five simply because, like you say, there was almost none of the race where you could you could take your eyes off it. There was something happening nearly all of the time. And I, I suppose I had a fairly unique tour experience this year because I was there for the first week up to the stages where it went into Switzerland. So I kind of missed the, the, the next Wout van Aert masterclass uh, to Lausanne. Um, but those stages in the middle week where I was at home and able just to watch on TV uh, were gripping, you know, bar none, weren't they? I mean, there was there was something happening every day. There was no such thing as a kind of a, a dud break with, uh, you know, with all the greatest respect to the riders from the sort of wildcard teams and, and the, the strugglers. Um, we didn't have any days really where they were just trundling through the countryside and, and the towards either an inevitable bunch sprint. And I suppose that's one of the things about the route, you know, it was so sprinter unfriendly, wasn't it? That uh, that definitely um, was a contributing factor to why day in day out it was just really entertaining racing and there was you know jeopardy there was things at stake not necessarily always the destiny of the yellow jersey well it looked like it was absolutely nailed on to be Pogacar and then all of a sudden it was absolutely nailed on to be Vingegaard when they were 
when Vingegaard was in the yellow jersey, I didn't really have a sense that he was going to suddenly falter. I suppose the one aspect of the race that was perhaps slightly lacking was the race for the green jersey, which was just, I mean, with the way the points are set up and Wout van Aert's characteristics as a rider, they may as well have just given him that jersey back in Copenhagen. Well, they more or less did, didn't they? He dominated the green jersey competition, even exceeding the way that Peter Sagan used to dominate that competition when he seemed to be untouchable. Van Aert is even more versatile and uh, a much better climber. So, I mean, even though that competition lacked any sort of drama, there was still a sort of sense of, I guess, marvelling at what Van Aert was doing day in, day out. Um, But no, I would agree with you, Daniel. Five wine glasses. I would probably have thought, I'll give it five, but then no, just to be contrary, I'll knock one off. Yeah, yeah. I think we share that characteristic. But (laughs) just to go back to... Go back to Van Aert or to dwell on on him and his contribution just for a minute. I mean, I think he he was the main reason that, um, well, he and Pogacar, but, you know, I've talked a lot in the last couple of years about, um, I've really enjoyed the Vuelta because I felt that the breaks in the Vuelta have generally had some bearing on the battle for the the general classification. And this has created a sense of kind of inter- connectedness or interconnectivity between the various narratives playing out on any given day you haven't had days when it's felt like a complete hiatus for the general classification and that's been my kind of big criticism I suppose of the Giro Um, no one's fault I mean the riders do what they have to do according to the imperatives of their team but um, just as a spectator I felt that the Giro has lacked that a lot of the time and Van Aert was really he was the sort of connective tissue between the battle for the stage or the break and the general classification every day because you know, often we didn't know exactly what he was doing and we didn't know why he was getting breaks and, and sometimes, I don't know about you Lionel, but I thought the explanations post-stage, whether it was from Christian Neerman, the direct sportif or Van Aert himself, were pretty unconvincing. But when you were watching you know, him attack, whether it was from the gun or later on the stage or counter-attack or you know, go off on these what turned out to be these sort of crazy sort of vanity breakaways you, you there was always the suspicion that there was some bigger play that related to Roglic early on and, and Vingegaard as well um, I mean just sort of recap it's worth kind of recapping Van Aert's just the extent of of how Van Aert did try to talk turn the tour into a bit of a one-man show I mean he was second on stage one second on stage two second on stage three then stage four he had his fantastic sort of nuclear bomb attack where he kind of sort of atomized the race behind him he was in the yellow jersey of course that day stage five he had this crash on on the pave but still managed to sort of save Jonas Vingegaard's tour to to a large extent because he, he then was able to pace Vingegaard back um, that was stage five stage six was the sort of crazy breakaway that probably cost him a stage win 146 kilometers he gave up yellow that day Planche de Belfi he had a bit of a, a quieter day that was a rare day when he wasn't in the break didn't attack he won stage eight to Lausanne stage nine to Chatel. he was in the big move that yielded well Bob Jungels and his stage win stage 10 to Majev again that day he had a 148 kilometer rest in the peloton through the Alps uh, stage 11, the Col de Granon stage, the, the probably, I think most people would agree, the, the most dramatic of all the very dramatic stages in the Tour. And well, Van Aert was the first guy to attack that day. Then he was the he was in a 19-man group for a lot of the day and played a, a sort of key role before the Telegraph, before 
Vingegaard started attacking Pogacar. Stage 12 to Alpe d'Huez, he sort of led the peloton over the Galibier. Um, stage 13, Saint Etienne again, uh, he sort of took that day off. Stage 14 to Mond, Pogacar was attacking early on in the day, surprising us all. Van Aert was the one marking him, following him. And and again, sort of saving Vingegaard's skin early in the stage. Stage 15, Carcassonne, he was off the front again with Mikel Honoré and Niels Pollitt. Stage 16, so this... The three stages in the Pyrenees, Foix, Peragud and Autocam, he was in he was attacking within the first hour in on all of those days. And in the case of Autocam, of course, he was caught up later by Vingegaard and did that fantastic last acceleration which effectively well that was the coup de grace that killed off Pogacar. So he was away for 103 kilometers that day. Stage nineteen, Pogacar surprisingly attacked again on the the stage to Kao Van Aert brought him back and then he gave Chris, uh, Christophe Laporte the green light to go for the stage in which he then got and then stage 20 he won the TT so yeah but I mean la- la- lazy because on the Champs-Élysées <laughs> yeah. instead of instead of trying to sprint for the win he was sort of posing for photographs with his teammates I mean you know he just minced he checked, around yeah he checked out early I mean he didn't he didn't <laughs> properly finish the race yeah yes <laughs> indeed indeed should be dropped when you spell it out like that I mean I you know my sense obviously was blimey what is Wout van Aert doing today um you know but when you spell it out like that and list the stages one by one and, and see how many days you know in inverted commas off he had from the significant race action it, that is extraordinary I mean not just the sort of the the, uh, the sense that he was there supporting Vingegaard but like you say there were days when it wasn't easy to work out what they were doing. And one way I sort of that came to me during the, uh, the recording of the podcast, I think with Francois in the final week, was that it just seemed to be that Van Aert was kind of like the advanced party going into outer space to check whether, you know, the territory is habitable before Vingegaard and the rest of the team got there. You know, it's almost like a sort of, um, uh, you know, bubble wrapping Vingegaard, you know, sort of, I don't know, some kind of safety bubble. Um, mm. Just, just insulating Vingegaard from the sort of the action, being on the front foot, I guess. You know, rather than riding that sort of defensive Grand Tour style of sort of seven men on the front with the yellow jersey tacked on the back. I mean, quite apart from the fact they didn't have the men to do that by the final week, anyway. Whether or not they would have raced in the same way had they been at full strength, it's hard to say, isn't it? But I agree with you. There was never really any. Was it because they didn't want to give away what they were doing or, 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 you know, let the kind of cat out of the bag that this was what they were going to do all the way to the end of the race, use Van Aert in this way? Or have they sort of saved the explanations for the Netflix series? We'll have to wait and see. Well, yeah, and, and you can even sort of blow it out even more and get even more sort of macro about it and say that, okay, the play was not necessarily even related to the Tour de France. The play, on a basic level, was giving Wout van Aert enough latitude for him to be happy to come back and do the same thing in the same team next year. And, you know, just to... Because I, I guess, well, we they'd, they'd pretty much spelled it out over the last few months that... Um, Van Aert had asked for a certain amount of support or certainly a certain amount of freedom to pursue personal goals and he certainly did that he was certainly able to do that he was certainly able well to win the green jersey and dominate the green jersey competition and also 
there were there were five or six or seven days when there's no doubt he made absolutely decisive contributions over and above probably what any other domestique for any other team did in the Tour de France. So just keeping him on side sort of justified the the the, the means, um, I, I suppose. And then of course you had Pogacar as well, who and he's sort of indomitable spirit throughout the tour. You know his attacks on the Orbisk, on the Paul de Leo as well, in the first day in the Pyrenees, um, and then UAE suddenly were well, rising from the ashes. The Phoenix is from the ashes. Um, Mikael Bjerg and and Brandon McNulty on the day to Paragud. Um, that was also you know a, a fantastic day of racing, almost. Almost as exciting, almost as dramatic as the Col du Grenon. Just one more thing on Van Aert. One thing that he was definitely doing, or his tacks were definitely doing um, every day, they were sort of lighting the fuse from kilometre zero, which was ensuring that Mark Hirschi and, to, on a lot of days, Mikael Björk were playing no role whatsoever, um, or could play no role whatsoever in the stage. Not because... They were worried and they were they were chasing Van Aert, but because Van Aert was was sucking, he was he was the sort of red rag, and he was drawing out other riders who could potentially be dangerous in the general classification or who could have some sort of bearing on the race later on. Tour de France was kind of racing in Van Aert's wake a, a lot of the time, wasn't it? And and that definitely influenced the the strength of the break every day. I mean, we often see it in the final week of a of a Grand Tour that the race settles into this pattern of there's probably sort of fifteen or so riders who are just, you know, they they're still feeling pretty decent. They're they're still uh, able to get up the road. Often it's the same people, isn't it? Especially in those mountain stages. But throughout the race, because Van Aert was on the attack, it was teasing out strong riders to, to go with. And um, that in itself just made everything more entertaining. You mentioned the stage to uh, Carcassonne, where it was Van Aert, Pollitt, Honoré. I mean, again, a totally kind of baffling breakaway identity, really. Only three of them, all three of them very strong, um, you know, world-class types of riders and, and never allowed any real gap, you know, a couple of minutes at most, wasn't it? And um, it it was just tense racing. You know, it wasn't a soft break just sort of sitting on television. It was, it was what on earth is going to happen here? How is this going to play out? Uh, of course, Van Aert eventually sat up, didn't he, and, and left the other two, um, you know, fairly doomed from that point on, really. But it just made the racing tense and you know exciting because of that tension, really. Uh, and I suppose that's really what characterised the entire three weeks. Shoot, uh, shoot à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Noom. Regular listeners will know that I lost weight using the Noom app. I signed up for it last September and over a period of a number of months I lost almost 20 kilograms. Got down from 90.4 kilograms to just under 71 kilograms. I put on a couple of kilos uh, over the last month or so, largely as a result of being at the Tour de France. It is harder to keep track of calories when eating in restaurants every day and it's harder to stick to some of those good habits when on the road. Uh, but I'm not particularly worried because I'm still within the window of weight that I set myself. I'm just using the Noom app still daily, but in a slightly different way now. I'm using it to make sure that my portion sizes don't creep back up again. I'm using it just to keep myself accountable so that I know each day whether I'm roughly on track or not. 
I'm just not using it to actually lose weight. I'm using it to just maintain weight and make sure, as I say, I don't creep in the wrong direction again. Because, well, if I slip back into my old habits of snacking and serving myself meals that were, frankly, far too large for me, I will undoubtedly gain weight even if I'm exercising. So I'm just using Noom now to just maintain and keep me where I'm at. If you'd like to lose weight for good, sign up for your trial at noom.com slash cycle. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash cycle. So there was that, Lionel. Um, I think on the, the word days when, you know, Bob Jungle's winning in Châtel and you know, Hugo All, for example, winning in Foire, they were days when you might say, OK, um, it wasn't as exciting as if, you know, it had been Pogacar and Vingegaard uh, fighting out for the stage win. But they was a couple of great human interest stories. Jungles, who's had a terrible couple of years and come back against the odds and, and had almost missed the tour right down to, I mean, I was at the team presentation and, and we were waiting for him to turn up didn't know whether um, he had tested positive for covid or hadn't finally did take the start and then won a stage so that was one of these as i say sort of cameos human interest stories which which had a lot of, of spice as well to the tour and then ugo all as well i think most people having watched him winning foire are familiar with uh, the story about his brother having died um, 10 years earlier and how his whole career really has been a monument to his homage to his his brother and so that was that was heartrending to to watch and and very enjoyable to watch there were some absolutely classic stages the Col de Granon is one of the great stages um, when Vingegaard you know, they're always great stages when someone's sort of veil of invincibility is shredded. You know, the Les Arc stage in 1996 when Indra finally cracked. I mean, it's memorable for many things, that stage, but that's certainly a classic. And, and the Pralu stage in 1975 where Bernard Tevenet um, took down Eddie Merckx, the first guy to do that. You know, these, these are always... Uh, highlights of any era and, and that's certainly going to be the case of the Col de Granon. That was a fantastic stage, Autocam. And I think Lionel, I don't know whether you agree, but whether well, the Pogacar Vingegaard sort of seesaw well it maybe that's one thing it lacked that it didn't go back and forth many times as you said it was seemed like Pogacar was going to win and then it seemed like Vingegaard was going to win maybe you know it lacked the sort of back and forth of a sort of 1986 Le Monde and Eno the yellow jersey going from one to the other and and, and seeming as though it might go the other way again but what it did have was the sense that the future, the immediate term and also the medium term and maybe even the long term of professional cycling was being redrawn in real time and re-scripted. It felt like it had a big bearing on the next few years. And, and you also felt that this was the absolute gold standard, not only of what the what is currently happening in professional cycling, these are the best riders around at the moment at full power. But we, I think we all feel that this is an extraordinary generation. I think we feel that this is uh, professional cycling reaching uh, a, a sort of new apex. And and Pogacar is a guy, you know, who we thought was going to be the next Mercs, um, was going to win for the next... Um, five maybe even more years and now suddenly he's been joined on the top of the perch by another rider who we really didn't see coming or um, certainly until last summer we we had no idea was coming and um, you know I think that there was a gravitas to the whole 
race and that and that battle um as i say the sense that an era an epoch was being was being redefined before our eyes i don't know if you shared that sense yes sort of i i feel like there's a sort of sense of intensity that the tour de france has kind of i mean it's always been an intense event but whether it's the sort of weltification of the stages uh, the style of the racing and it, it felt like you know are we are we actually witnessing a, a a period where the the best rider burns very intensely for a, a couple of years and and then somebody sort of takes over i don't know but the the sort of changing of the guard has happened uh, almost in sort of successive years hasn't it really with uh, um bernal looking like he was going to dominate pogachar looking like he was going to dominate and i must admit i although i thought vingegaard was a, a live threat to pogachar i just didn't see him beating the slovenian this year at all and, and as i say until suddenly it looked inevitable and uh yeah i, I found that battle um, intriguing and the prospect of them renewing that battle next year um perhaps with some other actors in the mix as well um you know that's that is something to look forward to i think do you think we've seen we saw this year their respective ceilings or do you think is there any part of you that thinks pogacar was slightly off color if you look at the mountain stage in 2021 he he was able to drop vingegaard at the end of okay at the end of climbs particularly in the pyrenees he would drop him in typically in the last kilometer and he did a couple of times and of course there was the stage to Le Grand Bournon early in the race when I think Vingegaard hadn't quite settled into the or he hadn't become comfortable with the idea that he was now the leader and I think probably he could have got closer to Pogacar that day than the three minutes or whatever that he ended up losing but there's no doubt that Pogacar was was a better climber than Vingegaard in the 2021 tour and then that was very much reversed this year, I don't think anyone would argue that Vingegaard was simply stronger in the mountains. Uh, the, my, my sort of question mark, I suppose, uh, looking ahead, looking ahead to next year, and, and as you say, the, the sands may well shift again. And, and you know, we're, we're imagining this duel now, this rivalry stretching out into the future, but it might not be the case at all. But I do, I, I just wonder how they're going to stack up against each other next year and whether one of them, well, Pogacar's got got more to, to give maybe the weather you know there was a lot of talk about the the heat and him not being quite as good in the in the heat that may have been a factor also you know there's no doubt that his team he was let let down by his team he was let down in the winter as far as as I'm concerned um in terms of the recruitment at UAE we all you know we saw them signing George Bennett and adding um, other riders and we thought oh they'd already got better last year and now they've made another step forward but actually when you're in a situation where Matteo Trentin tests positive for Covid a few days before the the race you're replacing him with Mark Hirschi I mean it's like sort of chef running out of goat's cheese salad and someone ordering a creme brulee instead it's you know they're not like they're not like for like comparisons at all they're like for like replacement at all um here she's case i mean he wasn't ready anyway essentially he's a climber or a punchy climber and what they needed was an experienced ruler and if you look through their roster i mean i heard that the the two other riders who would ordinarily have replaced Matteo trentin were um Corvi, who won a big mountain stage at the giro or ulisi neither of whom are 
that that sort of experienced ruler who would have looked after Pogacar on the cobbles and in the first hour, first hour and a half of mountain stages. So that's definitely somewhere where, again, they will, I'm sure they will address some of that in the winter, but the way they did it last year does not inspire that much confidence in me. And, and Jumbo Visma seem to have just added more pieces to the puzzle every year. And I did get the feeling that this year they had finally completed the puzzle of what was required to win the tour. And I don't think that UAE are only one year away from from doing the same thing. I, I still feel that they're, they're, they're some way short of UAE, of, of Jumbo Visma, sorry. Yeah, I, I just lastly on Pogacar, I mean, it's the first time he's really pushed as well. That's the other thing. You know, he came, he sprung the real surprise in 2020 in the time trial at La Planche de Belfi, of course. And then uh, he won convincingly in 2021. I mean, the time gaps were were you know, significant pretty early in the race, weren't they? And and he could just hold everybody at arm's length. And even when he did falter slightly under pressure from Vingegaard, uh, it wasn't in any way critical. This was the first time he met someone who was his match. And uh, perhaps there was an element of surprise to that. And, and that when he went searching for the, the gear required to, uh, you know, sh- shake off Vingegaard, it just wasn't quite there. You know, he was. He thought, and perhaps maybe thought there was more to come, and uh, it just wasn't. It wasn't there when when he needed it. And Vingegaard got himself into the position, largely as you say, thanks to smart team riding, which again you, you kind of put into context after it's all finished. At the time, I couldn't quite see the pattern of of what they were doing, but they clearly were. They were protecting him in an in a slightly unconventional sort of way but when it really mattered they had bodies around him didn't they but yeah it will be interesting you know Pagachar, if he did underestimate Vingegaard or think that he had did a, the, the measure of him he won't make that same mistake a second time I'm sure The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport Science in Sport fueled by Science Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. As ever, you can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. Of particular interest to endurance athletes, especially cyclists, is the beta fuel range. Athletes have been shown to tolerate 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour, which is significantly higher than the 90 grams previously recommended. This is Professor James Morton, Science in Sports Director of Performance Solutions, talking about the recipe and the blend that goes into creating beta fuel. Well, the science behind the new beta fuel range really relates to the concept of using two different types of carbohydrate, that being maltodextrin and also fructose. And we've known for many years, of course, that carbohydrate improves performance, though unfortunately our upper limit to glucose ingestion and utilisation is usually around 60 grams. However, when you add fructose to the blend, then you can increase the total amount of carbohydrate that we use during exercise. Now traditionally the way that we put glucose and fructose together was a two to one ratio. What we now know is the optimal ratio for digestion, absorption and actually carbohydrate utilisation is around one to point eight. So the science behind beta fuel is putting both of those sugars together in an optimal ratio to enhance the amount of carbohydrate that's digested absorbed and used to ultimately make you go faster. Daniel, there was an intriguing three-way battle at the Tour de France this year. I'm not talking about the race itself. I'm talking about the three designs, the map jerseys that the listeners all voted for. And, well, the winning jersey was Dot. 
I mean, what was your verdict on that? I agreed with it, Lionel. I agreed with it. I was oh. I was aware of this whispering campaign being orchestrated by Francois Tomazo in favour of the Czech jersey, <laughs> which I didn't. I think revealed his age. To be honest, sorry, 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 Francois. Well, I, I think the millennial choice, I and I do just sneak in to the age bracket that is considered millennial. Um, I think the millennials went for the well, their 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 voice won out in the end. Indeed, yes. Well, the dot jersey. Uh, which everyone can have a look at on thecyclingpodcast.com. That was the winner. There are some winners because uh, MAP also ran a competition. Everyone who voted uh, won a competition to win the Cycling Podcast collection when it is released a little bit later on in the year. And the four winners who will receive the jersey are Douglas Miller from Glasgow in Scotland, Wally Tass from Rotterdam in the Netherlands, Thomas Robin or more likely Thomas Robin from Rennes in France, and Christopher Villator from Maryland in the USA. So uh, they can all look forward to receiving a Dot Cycling Podcast map jersey in, I think, a couple of months' time. Hopefully they will be available in September. And, of course, the Dot jersey, the Cycling Podcast map jersey, will be available for all of our listeners to buy. So listen out for details on that uh, a little bit later on in the summer. Map.cc is where you can have a look at all of Map's clothing, both on and off the bike. Daniel, anything else from the tour this year that uh, really sort of sticks in the memory? Well, again, some of the sort of smaller stories, storylines, plot lines, I think... You know, early on in the race, obviously, we're in Denmark. Um, from our point of view, Denmark was quite challenging logistically. And um, that probably selfishly uh, affected uh, well, my enjoyment of it. Um, just because it was, as I say, it was it was a, tr- a tricky few days just covering the distance, really. And Denmark's a bigger country than you realise uh, when, when you're going across the whole breadth of it. But the crowds were extraordinary, as everyone realised, as everyone saw, and everyone um, has talked about. And they didn't surprise me because you know I've been saying for a while now that I think that the level of interest and the level of passion for professional cycling in Denmark is second to none in, and that includes even Belgium um, in in Europe. Um, you know, sort of base that on working alongside Danish TV crews, particularly over the last few years, and the the sort of the the level of well the the intensity of their coverage um you know the number of Jonas Vingegaard questions they managed to shoehorn into it interviews with any rider of any nationality is a, a good gauge um but so that was that was terrific from the point of view of the race and obviously ASO would have been absolutely thrilled with with the response there um, and then we had this sorry Daniel do you get the sense with these starts though that I mean the, they were two fairly calm neutralized days of racing really weren't they that they were the only two days really where uh, and I'm not going to say soft break because the, the Magnus Court was um, you know he was he was riding uh, you know, extremely hard to, um, well, get the King of the Mountain jersey for one thing. Um, but there is a sense, I feel, with these big start in another country, there's a sort of caution uh, around the yeah. whole race. Everyone just wants to get back to the home country unscathed, especially with the, 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 the threat of COVID around as well. I think you're right, uh, yeah. Some con- concerns. And I just felt 
you know the crowds were absolutely incredible um the, the sprint finishes were interesting you know i i mentioned at the time you know that there was sort of symbolism of of um jakobsen getting one and gronewegen getting one even if they haven't quite entirely you know let bygones be bygones um perhaps but uh you know that was a good story for the opening weekend i felt but i do wonder you know we'll see won't we with the the start in the netherlands for the welter whether we have a similar kind of effect but i i do wonder whether i mean this is clearly the the economic concerns of the races uh, trumping the kind of sporting concerns of the races in some sense not that i want to you know sort of pour cold water on the idea of the grand tours starting outside of their host country but um, we are seeing a bit of a pattern emerge i think with the, the the way the racing goes on these days yeah i think you're right lionel um, i mean journalistically from a storyline point of view the big stories were the crowds magnus court and and as you say the sort of tit for tat of jacobson and gronewegen winning but you know had it been franck bonamour instead of magnus court we probably would have felt quite differently about a couple of those stages or the, the stages two and three i mean if if franck bonamour is listening you know no offense but yeah i think you're right well the other the, i suppose the only other disappointment really was um the lack of a of well a continuation of the cycling's coming home thibaut pino redemption um, narrative arc that I was I was desperately trying to tee up before the tour. It didn't really it didn't really happen, did it? David Gordou rode a fantastic Tour de France um, uh, to finish. And where did he finish in the end? Fourth, wasn't it? Um, but mm. Thibaut Pino didn't have the best time, and the, the French in general. There was the, the sort of false dawn of Roman Bardet um, being well placed on general classification until until the Pyrenees. But, um, I, I mean, if I was a French fan, I wouldn't be particularly alarmed by the fact that they didn't win a stage. Um, I think it's a bit of a sort of statistical anomaly. They did. They had four riders. Was it four riders in the top 20 on general classification, which was um, a, a big improvement on certainly the last several years. But I would have liked to see Pino up there, certainly. Yeah, I mean, looking at the rest of the overall classification, I mean, I suppose this is something that is always true of the Tour de France top 10, uh, because it's almost like, um, I don't know, a, a, an archaeologist um, digging sort of the the layers of uh, the, the last 10 years of the Tour de France are kind of all represented there, aren't they? Uh, but I didn't really get the sense in the overall race that there was a kind of, you know, a, a coming man, a kind of somebody young, um, that's going to kind of challenge Vingegaard and Pogacar. It's kind of like the greatest hits of the last 10 tours, really, third to 10th, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean... And I suppose that's that's what makes uh, Tom Peacock's ride on the stage to Alpduez. That was, you know, that offered something for uh, the future. I don't quite know this point whether he will uh, fulfill on the kind of uh, you know the promise of that stage win and become a, a grand tour contender but certainly there was enough on that stage with the the descent and then the ascent of uh, Alpe d'Huez to you know to show that he has got everything required yeah and uh, it would be remiss of his line we haven't even mentioned Geraint Thomas yet um, he was you know he, he felt Often as though he was riding a different race from Vingegaard and Pogacar, but to do what he did at 36 years of age, if he'd won the Tour de France, he would have been the second oldest Tour de France winner ever. And um, just only, I think it was about 100 days um, younger he would have been than the 
oldest ever Tour de France winner, which was, I'm going to pronounce this in French, Lionel, because he was born in Namur, um, Fermat Lombard, the Belgian rider, who won in, um, well, his last, the last of two um, victories was 1922. So, I mean, incredibly sort of, gutsy ride from Thomas in a very just a very smart piece of of management of his energy um wasn't it by Thomas he you know he knew that following um Vingegaard and particularly Pogacar's attacks wasn't going to serve him and um he, he was very patient every day and used his team well and um yeah, I thought that in some ways, and I could almost tell from speaking to Thomas every day, there were, in some regards, he found this result as gratifying as when he won the Tour de France in 2018. It felt like almost a more difficult undertaking, given you know how long it's been, you know, since he was really considered a favourite to win the Tour de France, and the fact that going into this year, few pundits would have tipped him to be challenging for the podium but he had this fantastic you know uh, unnoticed by most people he had this fantastic build-up to the tour I mean obviously we all saw him win the Tour de Suisse in June but prior to that he he finished every stage race he'd done he'd sort of sailed through everyone um, hadn't had the problems that he'd had in previous years and um, yeah it's really well, having a fantastic season or was having a fantastic season up until his crash in the Commonwealth Games yesterday that was certainly another another sort of in, very interesting storyline um, over over the three weeks um, just on the on the tour in general Lionel uh, I mean we all obviously watched the Tour de France fam um, which came immediately afterwards and was a great success and yeah, this really relates more to our experience covering the race than it does to the, the the pictures that people see at home. But you know, just watching the Tour de France fam, it was so sort of refreshing. Um, you know, because it was a different cast of characters and it was a different you know different style of racing, different distances, different course. And I don't know what you felt, but again, the sort of the kind of apparatus around the tour, the start village, the the aesthetic of the tour, the look of the tour, the the kind of audience that it's courting in France. It's still this kind of very old, um, rural kind of audience that it courts in in France. Um, it does feel it felt quite stale, and it felt quite stale, particularly in relation to the Tour de France fam and and the sort of excitement around that. In spite of as as we've discussed this, well, this five wine glass race itself this year. I know what you mean. The Tour de France is kind of, I've said it before, it's kind of business, isn't it? And it gives, gives off a kind of a, corporate is perhaps not um, not quite what I mean, but they're just a type of sponsors that, um, that, that are associated with the men's Tour de France. Like you say, they are courting uh, a particular demographic in France. And yet they have this balance of being, of trying to cater to a huge international audience as well. I suppose when you boil it down, the Tour de France is just not that cool, is it? When compared to the Giro d'Italia, for example, there's something kind of cool and aspirational about the Giro. And the the Tour de France just feels, uh, yeah, I guess uh, that bit more business-like. It is, the focus is much more on the kind of the racing, the getting a result from the Tour de France to kind of, you know, everybody justify their existence in the sport, really. There's a sort of, uh, as much as the racing was probably more dynamic than 
consistently more dynamic than I can remember, really. I mean, it, it was a Tour de France that kind of harked back to, you mentioned 1986 and the kind of the... Um, the kind of the controlled chaos of, of that race. I also think of 1989 as a, a, as another tour where you tune in not knowing, not having any real predetermined idea of what might be happening. Um, and this tour did have that flavour. But I know what you mean visually, um, you know, from a sort of gra- graphic design point of view, it just needs a kind of lift, doesn't it? It needs a sort of refresh. It needs a spruce up. And, you know, Lionel, a lot of people were back at the tour this year um, for the first time in three years because of COVID. And it does feel like, you know, we, we've sort of emerged post-COVID into a new reality uh, in terms of, you know, the issues kind of, some of the issues facing the world generally. And, and you know, some of those, obviously, the tour itself has kind of addressed in, in a certain sense by f- at long last you know, launching a women's race and women's edition Tour de France fan, which was, as I say, a great success. But, um, you know, to go to the Tour this year and, you know, to see the, the number of vehicles following the Tour and the number of vehicles choking up roads, coming down from mountaintop finishes and the publicity caravan, which has not changed. It has not moved one millimetre in terms of hmm. what it is, um, the you know, the rubbish that it, that it litters the side of the road with and you know the, the the unfortunate reality is that and there are statistics about this is that a huge proportion of the people that go to watch the tour de france at the roadside do it for the publicity caravan so that's a difficult that is going to be a difficult circle to square for the tour in future but you know it's it's dozens and dozens of, of vehicles consuming a huge amount of fuel and you know this applies to you know the flight from denmark and and the whole caravan, the whole circus that has to move from one country to another. And the, there are certain things like that. And, you know, the, again, the kind of public that the tour is clearly trying to court with, you know, at the start of stages, in the start village, you know, there's no, there's no urban music. There's no effort to, um, to, to court a kind of more urban population. It is, you know, it's La France Profonde and it's bunting and it's, you know, it's almost sort of, garlic around the neck and stripy jumpers um and and that was just it was slightly jarring after three yeah after after three years of as i say which feel like they've been a bit of a punctuation mark in the world and and in sport and in in all aspects of life to just to just be confronted with everything that we've known for the last 10 20 30 40 years just as i say it it jarred a little bit i mean this is uh i mean this is the sort of stuff that should really knock off half a wine glass you, really <laughs> should, should just say i mean uh, not not to kind of leap to the defense at all because uh, the, the the moves are pretty slow really but more vehicles in the convoy are uh, either all electric or hybrid vehicles um you know i know that that is something that the tour has been trying to address um but yeah, I I agree. I mean, the, the, you know, we've we've talked before about the environmental impact of the Tour de France on its uh, on its surroundings. But I think we also felt this year the environment's impact on the Tour de France. It was scorchingly hot, uh, wasn't it? I mean, there were particularly down in the southwest when I got back down to the race. I mean, I know there was the there was the heat wave, the two day heat wave in the south of England where temperatures reached. Uh, the high 30s possibly even the low 40s celsius it was uncomfortably hot the stage to carcassonne i felt and and it's remained very warm through the final week i mean the tour de france is a hot event uh, 2003 was a very hot tour wasn't it it was getting to a point where it was kind of 
uncomfortable not not least for, for the riders yeah and the, the Tour de France's size and its success makes it unwieldy I mean it's you know we've, we talked last year about the, the Vuelta in particular has been conspicuous in going going to great lengths to at least be seen to to be making changes in line with concerns about climate change you know, things like basically banning eradicating plastic bottles from the the race the the area um you know starts finishes so the now there are these huge sort of fountains where everyone has to fill up and it is easier for a smaller race um it's easier to have primarily electric vehicles certainly accredited vehicles um than it is for the tour there is no enormous publicity caravan which as i say is a big it's well it's it not only draws a lot of punters to the side of the road but it's a big cash cow again it's one of the things that makes the tour what it is and as successful as it is so so tricky you know I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to them but sometimes the changes do seem to take place at a bit of a glacial pace indeed well we should probably wrap up our incomplete justification of your <laughs> five wine glass rating of the tour de france i will just ask you though what if you had to pick one day uh, what was your favorite day on the tour it can be for any any reason i think the col de Grand on stage as i say was I think those those images will be burned into our memories. The, the images of of um, Pogacar, Roglic, and and Vingegaard attacking each other on the on the road out of Valois um, at the start of the Galibier, the Galibier proper after the Telegraph. Um, you know, I think they're they're classic images that will will live on. Um, anyway, it was curious. There was a curious parallel there as well with. Um, 2011, where the Telegraph, in particular, and Thomas Vauclair's mm-hmm. doomed efforts to f- to follow attacks and follow Alberto Contador and and Cadell Evans as well, having a mechanical on the Telegraph, that sort of saving him. There was a parallel in in both, well, the same stretch of road having decided two of the the great additions of the Tour de France, because 2011 was a great addition as well um, of the last of of the last sort of era. Well, we should continue on this bridge between the Tour de France to the Vuelta a España. We will be back next week with a look ahead to the Vuelta and uh, what we can expect from the third and final Grand Tour of the season. Daniel, you're going to be there certainly for all the Spanish stages, uh, jumping in, ignoring the, uh, the the three days in the Netherlands. Well, we won't be ignoring the three days in the Netherlands at all. We'll be covering those, but uh, you'll be uh, jumping in on the road in Spain, won't you, from stage four onwards? Joining in the Basque Country, correct. So we will talk about the Vuelta a bit next week as the start list starts to take shape and we'll uh, look ahead to some of the key stages. In the meantime, just to wrap up our kind of Tour de France coverage, it's not too late, I don't think, to get the uh, the, the, the crew de flaneur. Was that the name of the, the, the collection of yes. wines that... Greg Andrews put together for Divine Cellars, and Daniel, you made the podcast. Yeah, sampled by and enjoyed by, among others, well, one gentleman who rode the Tour de France. Owen Dahl told me, told me one day at the Tour de France that he'd ordered a case, and was I think his parents, in fact, were enjoying them. Um, hope, I, 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 oh. I assume, I trust that Owen didn't have the case on the EF education team bus and he wasn't tucking in post stage every day um but yes that is still available lionel um from divine sellers um, dot com d that's d 
letter d vine sellers.com and we will be well we'll be unveiling our welter selection very soon and um, i think i'll be putting out a podcast with greg andrews to discuss that as ever it's an very much an optional listen we're very aware that it's not for everyone um you don't want to hear me droning on about grape varieties and greg for 40 minutes or an hour or whatever it is but some people um, very much enjoy those episodes I wondered if that was the wine police just just <laughs> in the background there, the, the sirens. I don't know. Uh, just lastly, to mention also the the new book that the Cycling Podcast has published in uh, in English. It's originally a French book by Olivier Haralambon, and it was uh, published in French. And it's been translated by Francois Thomaso, and it's called The Cyclist and His Shadow. It's on sale. You can find a link from our website, thecyclingpodcast.com. Uh, there's two different editions. We have the UK uh, and rest of the world rights, and there's a separate American edition. But there's a link for uh, anyone who wants to buy the book uh, will be able to do so. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com. And if you are a best friend of The Cycling Podcast, uh, that will be this year's uh, free gift for you. So uh, look out for an email from us uh, asking for your details so we can send you a copy of the book if you are a best friend of The Cycling Podcast. That's our thank you to you for your support. All that leaves me to say, Daniel, is thank you very much. We'll reconvene next week. We will, Lionel. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burnett.